church family, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 119. We'll pick up this morning in verse 33 here in just a moment. Now, if I didn't tell you, you may not notice, uh, but it's VBS week at Nansman River. Did you notice? I hope you did. As you came in, we've had a team of folks uh, working all week in pretty much every corner of our church to get this place ready uh, for what we expect to be an incredible week of Vacation Bible School. This is one of not only the most active weeks in the life of our church, but for me, one of my favorite weeks. Uh, it is a, it's a great week where we come together as a congregation. We have over 90 volunteers from our congregation uh, that will be serving, I don't know, last time I heard something in the neighborhood of 150 or more uh, children, both from our church and uh, our community who will be participating in Vacation Bible School this week. Now, maybe you're one of those leaders. Uh, thank you. Uh, for what you'll do. I hope to be able to tell you thank you in person this week as I get to watch you serve the Lord in VBS. But if I don't, thank you now preemptively for doing what you'll do. And if you're not one of those leaders, maybe you're working, maybe you can't show up this week for Vacation Bible School. I want to tell you how you can uh, join in with us even though you can't be here. The most important thing you can do, and we don't just say this to say it, we say it because we mean it. The most important thing you can do for Vacation Bible School this week is to pray. I mean that. You can pray earnestly that the Lord would move in the hearts and lives of children and their families this week during our Vacation Bible School. So here's some, some things that you can pray for specifically. Number one, pray for all of the kids that are going to be coming here uh, as we gather together in large groups that will enjoy one another, that's a part of Vacation Bible School. We really want them to have fun, and we want to pray that they'll have fun, that they'll be exposed to godly adults and teenagers who are serving them, that they will see Christ in us, that they will hear the good news of Jesus from our Bible story leaders every single day, and that they'll, they'll see the good news of Jesus in the life of our uh, church as we serve them during Vacation Bible School. And on Wednesday... Uh, the older children will hear a direct gospel presentation from me in that morning. I'd want you to pray specifically on Wednesday morning uh, for me as I share the gospel with them and for those children as they hear the gospel. And here's what we would pray, that the Lord would cause new life to come into the hearts of some of these children. And then pray for our leaders as we interact with moms and dads and grandparents as they drop children off and pick them up. And then on Thursday evening, show up, be here for family night. We list this as one of our church's uh, corporate fellowships because that's what it is. We don't just want VBS volunteers to be here, but we want you to be here, whether you helped us or not, whether you have children in VBS or not, show up at six o'clock, be here, greet people, get to know people from our community. Uh, every year during Vacation Bible School, people come into the life of our church who end up joining our church, being faithful servants alongside of us. And a lot of that is because of the relationships they build during that week. So I encourage you to be here uh, on family night. If you can't be here any other time, be here on family night on Thursday night as we celebrate what the Lord has done uh, during Vacation Bible School. And so would you just pray for us? It's gonna be a larger VBS than we've had, it seems like, as far as registration goes. So pray for all the logistics that are involved in it, because I promise you there are a lot of logistics that are involved uh, in, in VBS. And so pray for the people that are gonna be involved in that, and we look forward to seeing what the Lord does 
uh, in the life of our church and our community as we host Vacation Bible School this year. Thank you again for everything that you've done to make that possible. I invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 33 through 40 this morning of Psalm 119. The psalmist here is beseeching the Lord. Every one of these verses is a request. He writes, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gathered body of believers. Thank you for our opportunity to corporately worship you and study your word. Come before your throne together, we pray. Father, we thank you for the resources and the manpower and the opportunity that you provide for us to be able to do something like Vacation Bible School this week. We thank you, God, for the many volunteers, adults and teenagers who will faithfully serve this week during VBS. Would you give us joyful hearts as we serve? Would you help us, God, to remember the reason that we do what we do so that we can love people and point them to the good news of Jesus Christ? Father, we pray for the children who will show up at this VBS, both from our own families and from families in our community. Would we love them well and show them Jesus in all that we say and do this week? God, would you, in your power, draw boys and girls to the saving knowledge and faith of Christ, we ask. Would you bless our time now that we spend in your word? Help us, God, to persevere in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Part of what we do as pastors, and I don't just say me because we have uh, currently nine pastors who serve our church, and we share in this responsibility along with some of our deacons as well as others in our congregation who serve in this way. But part of the, one of the things that we do and that I have the opportunity to do is to walk with people in the last days of their lives. Now, we never know when the last days of our lives will come, even when we're told that we may only have days or weeks to live, that we really don't know. The Lord alone knows. But I have learned some things as I have walked with faithful saints of the Lord as their pastor in the last days of their lives. Things that are an encouragement to me. Things that I have walked out of people's homes, even recently, on two occasions in the last couple of weeks with faithful longtime members of our church, walking out of their homes and praying this prayer, Lord, would my last days be like that? Would I be faithful to the gospel of Jesus and have joy and hope in you 
knowing that my last moments may be at hand. Hopefully, and I say this, I use that word intentionally, hopefully, you've been able to see and experience that in your own life. As you've watched faithful brothers and sisters spend their last days longing for and looking towards eternity with Jesus. There is incredible testimony, incredible testimony that we share with future generations as we point them towards our one and only hope, particularly in those final moments when we agree with Paul and say, I have run the race, I have fought the good fight, I finished well. Today is a sermon about how do we get to that moment of finishing well. We're going to look today at the persevering life, a subject that we have considered on numerous occasions over the last few months, particularly as we were in our previous series through the epistle of 2 Peter. But we return to this subject, not because it's necessarily one that I chose to return to, because it's one that the psalmist now takes up here in our series in Psalm 119. As he gives eight desperate pleas, and these verses, as I said before I read them, each are a request, really a desperate request, a plea to help for the Lord, to help him finish well. The main idea of today's sermon is that we desperately need the Lord's help to finish life well. If that is your goal, to run the race with endurance, to finish well, to have a testimony where at the end you are able to have lived life faithfully, pointing others towards the hope that you have in Christ, know this, you will not, you cannot do that on your it will require the help of the Lord. It is a desperate need that we all share, that if we are to finish life well, we will do so because we call out daily and desperately to our God, help me, help me, because I cannot do this on my own. Help me, O oh Lord, to finish well. We'll divide this, this section of this psalm into two parts. The first that will tell us what true life really is. Because if we're talking about finishing life well, we need to define our understanding or refine our understanding of what it means to live life. And so we begin with depending on the Lord's provision for true life. To finish life well, we must first understand what life is. And two weeks ago, in this series in Psalm 119, we looked at what an abundant life looked like. We were reminded that life, true life, comes from Christ alone. That he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And that we must redefine life. That it is not simply the life that is being described here in, by the psalmist is, is not just a life that is lived by, by living beings. It is a life that is found in the ways of God. Two verses in this section are pleas for life. Verse 37 and verse 40. So I'd like us to consider out of order those two verses before we look at the rest of the text together. First, verse 37 
The psalmist pleads to the Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. What the psalmist does here in this verse is he contrasts life as the world knows it and life as God defines it. You see, church, real life is not based on our feelings or our desires or our emotions. Real life isn't defined by some subjective perception that we have developed in our own mind. Real life is found, the psalmist says, in your way. Give me life, what? In your ways. It is God who defines what real life is. I've said this often from the pulpit. This is his world. We just live in it. This is his universe. This is his creation. We are just a part of it. And so we don't get to determine the, the, the meaning of our life, the scope of our life, the purpose of our life. We don't get to say what life is. We must look and see what he says life is. Everything else in this life are worthless things. This is why he asked the Lord to turn his eyes from worthless things. Oh, how our eyes so often wander to that which are those things in life that are worthless. Even though the world may ascribe value to them, the world may say that there are things in this life that are worth living for, that God says, that's not where real value is found. That's not where real life is found. Real life is found in Christ and in the way of God. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 looks at his life before Christ and compares it to his life in Christ. And here's what he says. But whatever I gain, starting at verse 7, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I, might, I may gain Christ Everything that Paul had sought and gained, and he had sought and gained much. He had sought religious position. He had, he had sought respect and authority within his community. And he had gained those things. And he says, everything that I sought and gained, I now consider to be worthless compared to the life that is offered to me in Christ. Hear me. There is only one place for us to find true life, and it is in Jesus Christ. There is no life outside of him. We may look at the world and think they are living the life, but they are not. They are just going through this mortal life in their death. True life is found in Christ alone. So we must recognize that this world is full of worthless things and we must call out to God and say, turn my eyes from these worthless pursuits and show me what true life really looks like. Focus my eyes is the first plea of the psalmist. His second plea is in verse 40, the last of these verses. He says, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. 
The second thing we see about real life is first, it's in Christ. And second, it's not something that we earn on our own. Real life is not something that we can earn, but something that is given to us in your righteousness. Give me life. You see, life isn't found in gained righteousness on our own accord. If it was, then Paul wouldn't have needed to write Philippians 3 because he would have gained righteousness that would have exceeded any of that which we could have earned on our own. But he says, I look at that gained righteousness, that worldly understanding of righteousness and recognize it's all rubbish compared to that which I gain in Christ. He continues there in Philippians 3, he says in verse 9, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, not only I count all of these things as rubbish, but, but that which I have gained, I've not gained it on my own accord. I've not gained it according to my own righteousness. It's not something that I have earned, but it is something that has been given to me. It's a free gift of God so that no man can boast. It is a righteousness not based on one's own self, but a righteousness based firmly and solely in Jesus Christ alone. This doctrine is known as imputation. (laughs) It means that God takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes it, places it within you. And this is what it means to have real life in Christ. It means that he earned life for us. He by his righteousness. And this is the psalmist's cry. In your righteousness, give me life. I'll never gain life on my own. True life. The life that God defines. The abundant life that Jesus brings. I'll never have that on my own. I will only have that because God gives it to me in the righteousness of Christ. Free gift. Given to us. (laughs) So we see here in these first two pleas to God. What real life is. And that we are dependent upon the Lord's provision for real life. If you are in Christ, then you have received real life. But all of us have an unknown, to me at least, and to you, number of days days ahead of us. We don't know how many days are left for us on this earth. And so another question comes before us, a question that is before the psalmist here, and that is how do I persevere then in this life? Not knowing if I have days, weeks, months, years, or decades yet to live, my goal should be to walk in this life that I have found in Christ, this real life defined by God and the righteousness that he has given me. So how do we do it? How do we walk in that real life? How do we persevere in that real life? How do we get to our last days and say, I have run the race, I have fought the good fight? How do we do that? We do it with desperate dependence upon the Lord's provision. We depend, we must depend on the Lord's provisions to finish life well. It is the only 
means by which we can do so. It is the only means by which we stand a chance in this life of walking day by day, year by year, Lord willing, decade by decade, in the righteousness that he has granted to us, in the real life that he has given to us. And so in these other six verses in this section of Psalm 119, we will see six ways that the Lord provides for our perseverance and six ways that we then respond to those provisions. Each one of these pleas helps us to see how the Lord provides for us to finish well and how that provision changes our minds, changes our mindset, our thinking, our way of life more in line with his will. So we see six of them. The first is that he provides his word that teaches us in, way, in his ways and we remain steadfast in keeping it. He provides his word that teaches us his ways and we remain steadfast in keeping it. Go back to the first verse of this section. Verse 33, the psalmist calls to the Lord, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Now, as the psalmist does here, as the same he does throughout most of Psalm 119, he uses synonyms for the word of the Lord. In some cases, these synonyms provide specific context to the rest of the verse, and sometimes he's just being poetic. He's varying his language. So what we should see in most cases in these verses is the psalmist's view of God's word to him and, as we read it, God's word to us. And so here in this first verse, the psalmist is crying out to God that God would teach him. He says, teach me, O Lord, what? The ways of your statutes. Teach me, O Lord, your word. It is in the word of God that we know the will of God. It is in the word of God that we know the statutes of God, the desires of God, the person of God, the plans of God. All of these things are contained within the word of God. And without the Lord, we wouldn't know all of these things. We wouldn't know his person, his plans, his provision. We wouldn't know any of these things. We join with the psalmist in saying, teach me, O Lord. Are you thankful for the word of God today? I hope you are, because by the word of God, we can know certain things about God. We can know certain things about his will. We can know certain things about his plan for our lives and for our church. We can know what God desires for us because he has told us. He has provided his word so that it will teach us. And so then what is our response to the teaching word of God? We then commit to being steadfast to keeping it. This is what the psalmist says, teach me the ways of your statutes and I will keep it. What? To the end. I'll keep it to the end. I'm not going to just keep it today until something better comes along. I'm not just going to keep it today until I find another philosophy that I, that I like more or until the world comes up with, with, you know, 
uh, something better for me that that I could go in. No, I'm going to keep it to the end. I'm going to purpose my heart to doing what the word of God says till the end. This is my commitment. Here I stand, I can do no other. I'm going to ride this ship to the end. (laughs) That would be my prayer for this congregation. That this would be a congregation that remains faithful to the word of God. Not because you have a pastor that stands in this pulpit and preaches the word of God week in and week out. But because it is the foundation of our church. And we will say, I'm standing here. I'm not going to be taken in by anything else. If you go back to the last verses that we considered in our series in 2 Peter, we saw something similar in Peter, writing to the New Testament church, writing to the next generation of leaders in the New Testament church. And he says this, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In his parting words to the churches that he loved, Peter says, stay true to God's word. Let it teach you. And don't don't allow the unstable errors of lawless people to pull you away. Don't give in to the philosophies of this world and therefore lose your foundation. There will always be those who want to carry the church of God away from God's word. And what we do is we join with both Old and New Testament saints and say, this is God's word. I will not be moved. Teach me, oh God. Will you help me to keep it to the end? Help me to stay faithful to the end. Number two. He provides spiritual understanding so that we can keep his word and follow with an undivided heart. He provides spiritual understanding so we can keep his word and we follow with an undivided heart. Look at verse 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. There's a progression here, particularly in these first three verses of this section of Psalm 119. The first is, recogni- is recognition that we need to be taught by the word of God and keep it to the end. The second is that scripture is not just information to be known, but is wisdom to be lived. That's what the psalmist means when he says, give me understanding. He's not just saying, give me knowledge. Let me memorize the word. Let me know the word. That's important. That's the first step, that I know the word and desire in my heart to keep it to the end. God, would you help me do that? But second, would you also give me understanding? This is where knowledge becomes action. I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So scripture is not just information to be known, but wisdom to be lived. And the psalmist asks the Lord for his help to apply the word in his world. This is what understanding, this is what wisdom does, is it helps us take the word of God and put action to it in the place that we live. 
Now, we're somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 years removed from the writing of this psalm, but this plea remains just as just as necessary in our day as it was in his, because the word of God is not just knowledge to know. It's things that we do. Now, this isn't in your notes, but I want to draw your attention to James chapter one. James chapter one, writing in the New Testament church, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now here's what James is saying. James is saying it's not enough for us to sit day by day in worship, in corporate gathering, in small group, listen to teachings online and just hear the word and go away and not do it, not have the understanding that the psalmist is writing about. It'd be like a guy looking at a mirror and walking away and forgetting what he looks like. But that there is action that is required from us, that we not only know the word, but that we desire to understand it, to actually do it. And here's the, we have to join with the psalmist again. God, help me to do it. Help me to do it. This, this actually is one of the places that's so difficult for some of us. Some of us know the word really well, but when it comes time to actually live the word, when it comes time to actually apply it and say, okay, the word has told me this, therefore I'm going to do this. And we so often struggle with that, don't we? And we need to cry out with the psalmist for God's help. God, would you help me to not only know your word, but to have wisdom from it, to understand it. Number three, he leads us by his word and we find joy in following his path. He leads us by his word and we find joy in following his path. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. This is the third verse of a progression. Teach, understand, lead, the psalmist has shown us. And he cries to the Lord, lead me. So it's not just that we want to know the word and understand the word, but we want to be led by God through his word. This is how we get to the end. So imagine with me, if you will, the timeline of what the psalmist is outlining for us. We have, in a moment, a cry for knowledge. In a moment, a cry for understanding. But a lifetime of being led by that knowledge and understanding. What the psalmist moves to here is saying, not only, God, do I want to know and apply your word today, but I want to know and apply your word tomorrow and the next day and next year and for the rest of my life, I want to know and apply your word. I want you to lead me by it. And then notice what he says, for I delight in it. Here's our response to the leading of God's word in our lives, that it becomes our delight, that it becomes our joy. Now, let me help you for a minute because maybe nobody's told you this and you've struggled with it. You've read verses like this. You've read other Psalms. You've read other places that talk about our joy, our delight, being found in God's word, being found in his law, being found in his precepts, being found in his commandments. You're like, I don't really find joy in that. 
Or maybe you don't find joy in all of them. Maybe you find some of them to be burdensome still in your life. Can I tell you that's okay? Delight isn't the immediate outcome of being led by the word. But the path of Christ, while it may not always feel joyful in the moment, the promise of it is that we will find delight in the perseverance as we go. What you find burdensome right now will be a delight later. There are are a lot of teenagers, maybe some teenagers even in this room, there are a lot of Christian teenagers, a lot of us grew up as Christian teenagers, that that may have found some of the, the restrictions of a biblical sexual ethic to be a burden at times of life. But then after getting married, you find there's great delight in a biblical sexual ethic. And there's much of life that is like that. That as we grow and as we mature and as we continue day by day being led by the word of God, what we find is great delight and joy in it. So if today you say, I still find some of the word of God to be a burden for me. Here's my encouragement to you, brother and sister. Just keep walking in it. Cry out to God daily as the psalmist is doing. Call out to him and tell him that you need his help here. And here's what I can promise you he will do. As he, pers- as he helps you to persevere in his word through this life, you will find delight in it. It may not be immediate but you'll find it. Number four, he changes the desires of our hearts according to his word and we reject sinful desires. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. This again progresses, doesn't it? That that, that we're gonna find our delight, but maybe we're not gonna find our delight right away. And one of the reasons that we don't find our delight right away is because our heart's not fully inclined to his testimonies. Our desires have not been fully sanctified. We're still drawn towards sin and selfishness. And that's what's represented here in not to selfish gain. What's represented in the call to to, uh, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Selfish gain is representing just the desires of this world. And the help that we need from God is that we would continue to change our hearts that he would continue to mold our hearts towards him and away from this world. The the author of Hebrews gives us a, a similar comparison. He says, he writes at the end of his letter, he says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author of Hebrews is, is, is saying, listen, Keep turning your heart away from selfish desires and towards the promise that you, no matter what happens, have God. And if you have God, if you have a relationship with God, if you are right with him, if you have the righteousness of Christ, then the rest of this begins to fade away. This is a promise of scripture. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. 
Everything that we see in this life will one day pass away. Everything that this world tells us to value and to hold dear will one day pass away. But that which will not is that which the the power of God, according to his word, has birthed in our hearts. So we cry out with the psalmist. Change my desires, O God, so that I will put off sin in my life and put on Christ. Number five, he proves his word to be true time and again. And we grow in our reliance on him. Verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Psalm 18 tells us the word of the Lord proves true. And it's true. And this is, but notice, this is a, this is a plea. This is a, a request. The psalmist is desperate and he cries out to God and says, confirm to your servant your promise. Again, There's progression here. This isn't the psalmist laying out a fleece and asking that the Lord would make do on one side, if you know the story. This isn't the the psalmist looking at the Lord and and doing opposite of what Jesus says and putting the Lord your God to test. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, God, as you, as you teach me your word and give me understanding and guide me in it and change my heart, would you continue to show me over and over how your word is true? Writing this verse, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, make me sure of thy sure word. Make it sure to me and make me sure to it. The more sure we become of the Lord's word, the more sure we become of the Lord, which is why the psalmist says, confirm your servant, your promise that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord is placing the Lord in his right position, is recognizing his sovereign authority over all things, that he is God and we are not. And the more the word of God proves true in our lives, the more we recognize his position versus ours. There's great humility in understanding that God's word proves true time and again. Not our word, not our plan, not our path, but his alone. Number six, he helps us in the face of our adversity and we trust his judgment. He helps us in the face of adversity and we trust his judgment. Verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. That word that's translated, your rules are good, is probably best translated, your judgments are good. It's a word that describes a legal action. It's talking about the judgment of God. And he says, turn away the reproach that I dread because your judgments are are good. This is looking back to, to verses we considered a couple of weeks ago in this series, verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt for I have kept your testimonies. It, the psalmist again is crying out that the Lord would protect him from adversity. That the Lord would be with him in the face of the enemies that surround him and yet demonstrates a trust, a faith that God's judgment is right. So if God leads him, To borrow from another psalm, through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because it is the judgment of God that led him there. The path of God knows best. God in his judgment leads us and guides us even as we are surrounded by adversity. So what? 
Am I daily and desperately trusting in the Lord to finish the work he has started in me through Christ Jesus? Am I daily and desperately trusting in the Lord to finish the work he has started in me through Christ Jesus? Know this, that if you've not found Christ Jesus, you have not found true life. That's why I started with those two verses out of order, because I wanted to make very clear that life is found in Jesus Christ alone. And if you have not found life in Christ, if you have not come to him, repented of your sin, and trusted in his sacrifice on the cross in your place so that his righteousness may be given to you by faith, you are not living life yet. And if that's you, my friend, turn to Christ today. Believe and be saved so that you can have life and have it abundantly and so that you can begin today persevering in that life. And then daily and desperately trusting in the Lord to finish what he has started. For the many Christians in the room, this is our response to this psalm. Do we cry out to the Lord agreeing with the psalmist and saying, oh God, I need your help. Oh God, I need you to teach me from your word. I need you to give me understanding. I need you to guide me and lead me. I need you to change my heart. I need you to keep doing tomorrow what you're doing today. I need you to keep doing for the rest of my life what you're doing today because without you, God, I can't do it. Without you, God, I am unable to do it on my own. Earlier, we considered some of Paul's writings in the book of Philippians. I'd like us to end there. The first is with a great promise. Paul writes to the church, and this is, be mindful, this is writing to a corporate body of believers. I believe the application from this is corporate. And I'm sure of this, Paul says at the beginning of this letter, that he who began a good work in you, plural, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning that the Lord, God, has promised to finish the work of his church. You say, well, does, does that apply to me? Sure, it applies to you if you're a part of God's church. So here's the promise that we have, that God is going to finish what he started. Anybody start projects and then struggle to finish them? You got a bunch of un, like halfway done, like you got really bored in 2020, you know, when everything shut down and you started some stuff and that pile of wood still sitting in the garage. Right, we have a tendency to do that. You know who doesn't have a tendency to do that? God. God will finish what he has started in his church. He will build his church. He will redeem his bride. What God has promised, he will do. In the next chapter of Philippians, he turns it more personal. And he says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good purpose, his good pleasure. We faithfully work out our salvation. Don't get lost here. We faithfully work out our salvation as he works in us. So here's what we do. We daily and desperately call out to God in the way that the psalmist did and say, God, without you, I have no righteousness. Without you, I have no hope. Without you, I have no plan. Without you, I have no purpose. But you, God, give me all of those things. So help me, God. 
When's the last time you called to God and said those very words, help me? There's freedom there. Christian, hear me. There's freedom in the desperate cry to God to say, I need you to teach me. I need you to guide me. I need you to show me. I need you to change me. I need you to help me persevere to the end. Let's pray together. Help us, O oh God, for without you, we are nothing. Without you, we have no righteousness on our own. Without you, our eyes are fixed on this world. But as you go before us, as your word guides us, as you instruct us and provide wisdom to us and change us, God, you allow us to work out our salvation to the end. A promise that is sure for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Make us desperate for you. Remove those things in our lives that we think are providing for us and make us desperate for you. Show us those places in our hearts that we have yet to turn towards you and make us desperate for you. Show us those places in our mind where we have leaned on our own understanding. Make us desperate for you. Thank you, God, for the help that you give your saints. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've never followed Jesus, let today be the day. Maybe you've been coming here for a while. You've heard me make this appeal time and again. Follow Jesus because in him is life. I'll be in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. Let me help you follow him. Let's get your path started right. For the Christian, we look in our lives right now and we say, are there areas where I'm trying to do this on my own? Or am I desperate for God to help me to be faithful to the end? Let that be our goal as we stand to worship now. Would you stand with us?